You're listening to the Finding Christ in the Old Testament series, preaching by Pastor Rick Dressler at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. As they're finding their way there, take your Bible, if you would, and look at 1 Kings chapter 18 this morning. We're going to read the first 21 verses of our text today, and I do want you to listen as we open the Word of God. This morning, 1 Kings chapter 18, starting at verse number 1. And it came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show thyself unto Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. And Elijah went and showed himself unto Ahab, and there was a sore famine in Samaria. And Ahab called Obadiah, which was the governor of his house. Now, Obadiah feared the Lord greatly, for it was so when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord that Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifty in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And Ahab said unto Obadiah, Go into the land, unto all fountains of water, and unto all brooks, peradventure we may find grass to save the horses and the mules alive, that we lose not all the beast. Let me just stop for a moment. Didn't plan on stopping for a moment, but I find it interesting here, as you look at the text, what's important to Ahab, who is the king, and what's important to Obadiah. Obadiah wants to save lives. You know what Ahab wants to save? The horses and the mules. It's somewhat like government, isn't it? It's the economy, stupid. The problem is it's not about the economy. It's about people. And shame on Britain today for allowing a little boy to die. Obadiah realized it's about saving life. And Ahab wanted to save his mules. There's a problem with that. And there's a problem in our world today. And we are all screwed up. Because that's not what life is about. Let's continue. Verse 6, So they divided the land between them to pass through it. Ahab went one way by himself, and Obadiah went another way by himself. And as Obadiah was in the way, behold, Elijah met him, and he knew him, and fell on his face and said, Art thou my lord Elijah? And he answered him, I am. Go tell thy lord, behold, Elijah is here. And he said, What have I sinned that thou wouldest deliver thy servant into the land, into the hand of Ahab to slay me? As the Lord thy God liveth, there is no nation nor kingdom whither my Lord hath not sent to seek thee. And when they said, He is not there, he took an oath of that kingdom and nation that they found thee not. And now thou sayest, Go tell thy Lord, behold, Elijah is here, and shall come to pass. As soon as I am gone from thee, that the Spirit of the Lord shall carry thee whither I know not. And so when I come to tell Ahab, and he cannot find thee, he shall slay me. But I, thy servant, fear the Lord from my youth. Was it not told my Lord what I did when Jezebel slew the prophets of the Lord? How I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifty in a cave, and fed them with bread and water. And now thou sayest, Go. Tell thy Lord, behold, Elijah is here, and he shall slay me. And Elijah said, 
as the Lord of hosts lives, before whom I stand, I will surely show myself unto him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. And it came to pass, when Ahab saw Elijah, that Ahab said unto him, Art thou he that troubleth Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but thou and thy father's house, in that ye have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and thou hast followed Balaam. Now therefore send, and gather to me all Israel unto Mount Carmel, and the prophets of Baal, 450, and the prophets of the groves, 400, which eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent unto all the children of Israel, and gathered the prophets together unto Mount Carmel. And Elijah came unto all the people and said, How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people answered him not a word. May God bless the reading and preaching of his word this morning. I want to show you three things from the text this morning. We're just going to make our way through. The first portion is verses 1 through 16. Then there's a portion in 17 to 18, and we'll finish up from 19 to 21. The first thing I want you to notice about the text is this. I want you to see the contrast between God's servants. We've been reading about Elijah. If you read the chapter this week, you'll know the rest of the story about Elijah. And in the future chapters to come, we'll learn of him. But here's what we know. Elijah is a confrontational public figure who is in your face, who has a fiery disposition, who's not afraid to speak his mind. This is Elijah. And yet we're introduced now to Obadiah, who is not Elijah. It was interesting as I was going through some commentaries this week, I couldn't believe how disparagingly every commentary spoke of Obadiah. They talked of Obadiah as some great compromiser. And I thought that strange. Because the bottom line is, it doesn't matter what the commentary says. It matters what the Bible says. Look with me, if you would, at verse number 3. Here's what the narrator, who remember, they have the big picture in the narration. They know what's going on. Listen to what he says in verse number 3. Toward the end, it says about Obadiah, that Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. A matter of fact, down in verse number 12 or so, he tells Elijah, I have feared the Lord from my youth. And so here's this contrast now between Elijah and Obadiah, both of them godly saints who love Yahweh. The difference is Obadiah is a secular saint. He is the governor of Ahab's house, which means he's like the, uh, the, uh, the chief of staff. Whatever happens in Ahab's house, he sort of oversees that. Can you imagine that type of job? Ahab is the most wicked king that Israel has ever had. A matter of fact, as it talks about the sin of Jeroboam that made Israel to sin, Ahab is far worse than that. Imagine that workplace environment. Obadiah is the guy 
who goes to his weekly Bible study and says, hey, can you pray for my work situation? I don't think my boss knows the Lord in a personal way. Right? This is Obadiah. But he works quietly behind the scenes. A matter of fact, Obadiah is a monument to the failure of Jezebel. Here is Jezebel who had a liquidation policy. Her idea was, I'm going to change the culture. Balaam is going to come and be worshipped, and I will slay all the prophets of Yahweh. And what does Obadiah do? By his very own strength, he takes 100 prophets. He saves an entire seminary, all behind the back of Jezebel. I find that interesting. In our story, if you've been tracking with us, I hate to say tracking because Chandler says it all the time, he's tracking with this. But if you've been following us in this story, you know that God used ravens and a widow to care for one man. And it was miraculous. And yet here, in the very mundane, God uses one man to care for 100 And what does he do? He's not looking to widows. He's not looking to ravens. He's taking his bread and water and feeding them. May I suggest to you this morning that God usually works not in the miraculous, but in the mundane. Could you imagine if one of these prophets who who were hidden away in this cave thought, hey, wait a minute, Elijah's being fed by ravens. He's being fed by a widow woman with this cruise of oil and this little meal. I'm going to go out and let a raven care for me. I'm going to go out and let a widow care for me. You know what happened to that guy? He would starve. That wasn't God's plan for him. His plan was to be cared for by the mundaneness of everyday life when Obadiah was caring for him. I also suggest this morning that this is the way God usually works. I won't take the numbers there 100 to 1, but I I have a hunch this morning that if you need provision in your life, you could pray money down from heaven. I guess you could do that. And some of you probably have. Oh, God, let a Brinks truck fall over and the money fly out and just take care of my needs. Which, by the way, when you pick that up, it's actually stealing. That's happened before on a bridge, I think, in Florida where money was coming down from heaven. The problem was it wasn't their money. Right? Many of them end up in jail. Bad prayer. Or God in the very mundane could allow you to work a job and make a living. Boy, it gets quiet around here when you talk about working. I would think that this would be a very good thing. That's how God works. In in the mundane of life, he's provided for you health. And and I know some people don't, but if you have a healthy body, a healthy mind, then God has ordained to provide for your needs by working, by getting out of bed, by doing a job and doing it well. I would suggest to quit praying about the miraculous and get your rear end out of bed and go to work. It might just be that God will provide your finances then. Some of us want this miraculous strike of lightning so that now I will be spiritual. And God, if I just have that experience, then I will be walking with you in glory. Might I suggest something else? 
Because if you get struck by lightning, you might lose all your fingers and toes and maybe die. Maybe, just maybe, if you read the Bible. Man, working the Bible is really having a hard go this morning. If you read your Bible and you prayed and you tried to live out your faith, it might just be that after a while you might be spiritual. Be careful, my brother and sister, this morning. We look for the miraculous when God has already provided in the mundane things of life, and we don't like it, but it's true. Obadiah obeys God rather than man. Don't judge Obadiah because he's no Elijah. It's not fair. The God of heaven, the God that we serve, is original. He is creative. He doesn't just use this one mold. Sometimes he takes men and women who are like Elijah, who get in your face, who they're fiery, who they're confrontational, who they bring you to a point of decision. And at other times, he will use men and women like Obadiah, who secretly and quietly subvert evil. That's how God works. And we see it all around us. Newton said that sometimes God does his work with gentle drizzle, not storms. And this is true. Understand this morning that there is not just one kind of faithful servant. Look in your Bible this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Look at verse 4. Now there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are differences of administrations, or ministries, or servants, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of operations, but it is the same God which worketh all in all. There are different operations or activities or working, but it's God at work. Listen, the Bible makes it clear. When we talk about servants, which, by the way, if you are a believer this morning, you and I are on equal playing field because we are slaves to Christ. We are all servants. And the glory of our God is this that he uses the diversity of the body to fulfill his plan. We don't all have to be exactly the same. It's a good thing, because some of you folks are weird. You don't have to be the same. And we get in trouble when we try to mimic someone that's not our gifting, that's not our calling. I read a story the other day of the, uh, the U.S. Civil War. It was a story about General Sheridan, a Union general. They had overrun a Confederate position, and as they got to the top of the hill, Sheridan jumped on a Confederate cannon, took his hat off, and he rode it like a horse. I think this is how you ride horses, like that. He rode it like a horse, and the troops were just ecstatic about that. While he was doing that, one of his junior officers saw that and thought he would do the same thing, so he ran up to a cannon and jumped on it. The problem was, it was instant regret. That Confederate cannon had been fired more frequently than Sheridan's cannon. And it burned his backside so bad that for two weeks he could not get in the saddle. Right? It was a bad idea. He was no General Sheridan, and he picked the wrong cannon. May I suggest to you today, dear servant of Christ, Be who God has created you to be, 
Because if you try to emulate someone that you're not, you might just get your bum burned. I can say bum, can't I? Hannah says yes. My wife says nothing. It's too late. Here's what I want you to see. Listen to me. We read that text. Don't slam Obadiah. Obadiah is, is as faithful as Elijah is. Do you understand that? I don't know that you realize this, but the reason this church runs is not because of this. There is so much that happens in this place that, that people hardly ever see. The nurseries. Can I tell you how chaotic it could be in this? Well, you know. I don't have to tell you. If there is no nursery, it's tough in here. Nursery and craft class and junior church and toddlers and kids club. It all works. Someone works that. From the moment you come to the doors with a greeter or an usher, a bulletin, scheduling, it all works. Cleaning, maintenance, giving, loving, visiting, hospital calls, crying with somebody in their grief, rejoicing in their joy. It's all different, but it's all necessary. And so, this morning, understand, we're all servants. It doesn't matter. There is no, well, you're the grand poobah of servants. No, it doesn't exist. We are all children of the king. And we all have jobs. And so, just listen to me. Be faithful in your job. I know, this is a volunteer task force. Most of the things that get done in this church, people aren't paid for. And that makes it very difficult. But let me say something to you. If you do a job in this church, whatever it is, if it's music, if it's youth, if it's, if it's anything, ushering, be faithful. Do it to the glory of God. And see the body work in all of its diversity and unity. It's a beautiful thing. Don't play Facebook in church. This is not a comparison game. Well, look what they're doing. Look what they have. No, that's nonsense. We're a church. And servants of Christ are called to be faithful. Don't, don't imitate someone that, that's not your gift and that's foolishness. Be faithful to our Savior. Number two, verses 17 to 18 of our text. Not only do we see the contrast between God's servants, be faithful, worry about the likeness of Christ, but I want you to see this casting of blame and confession of sin. Look at verse number 17. And it came to pass, when Ahab saw Elijah, that Ahab said unto him, Art thou he that troubles Israel. Right? This is Ahab speaking now to Elijah. And the first thing he says is, aren't you the guy that's caused all this trouble here? And Elijah is very non-confrontational and says, pal, it's not me, it's you. This is your fault, your father's fault, your worship of Baal. The audacity to blame God's people for the problems. This is not new at all. Look at Luke chapter 23 this morning. You'll see this happen again. 
where someone is blamed for all the problems. Luke 23, 2 says, And they began to accuse him. They're speaking of Jesus Christ now. Saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to give tribute to Caesar. Lies, 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 of course. Saying that he himself is Christ a king, which is true. Verse 5, And they were the more fierce, saying, He stirreth up the people, teaching throughout all Jewry, beginning from Galilee to this place. Here is a religious crowd, and what they're saying is, hey, the real problem is Christ. Really? Do you mean the one who healed the blind? Who fed the multitudes? Who delivered the woman caught in the midst of adultery? He's the problem? Oh, yeah. The trouble with the world is Christ. It happens again. Look at Acts chapter 16, verse 20, about Paul and Silas. And they brought them to the magistrates, saying, These men, being Jews, do exceedingly trouble our city and teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe, being that we're Romans. And the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates ran off their clothes and commanded to beat them. And when they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely. The problem is, it's Paul and Silas. Why? They're preaching the gospel. That's the problem. Listen to me. Just heads up on this. Orwell said, the further that society moves away from the truth, the more it will hate the people that speak it. Hey, believer, guess what? You better be listening. You better be listening to the media. You better be listening to the politicians. The real problem in our nation today is not what you think. The real problem today is Christianity. It's the Christians who are the problem. We hear it over and over again. You better understand you're going to be hearing more and more of that. Listen. The early believers in Rome were not killed because they believed in Jesus. In Rome, you could believe in any God you wanted to. It was not a problem. Add gods, it doesn't matter, as long as you didn't disrupt society or have a problem with Caesar. And the reason Christians died in those first few centuries under Roman government was because they had another king, it was King Jesus, and they were rebels to the system, and, and, the, and, the, and the non-believers said, you people are atheists. So they call Christians. You're atheists. You make up trouble. You're the problem with this world. Alistair Bates said, an undefined Christianity is absorbable. Right? You can love Jesus. You can go to church, but leave it that way. And the minute you start to define what you mean, then we have trouble. You remember the story, I think it's Acts 7 or 8, maybe it's both, where Stephen is preaching um, to the Jewish leadership there. And he's given the history of Israel and everything's great. I mean, they're loving it. This is the best message I've ever heard. The history of our nation, it's a beautiful thing. Until he said, let's make application. You killed them. And guess what? They were no longer happy at all. And Stephen becomes the first martyr of the church. Okay, just that you know, 
the gospel of Jesus Christ, when it's properly defined, not just, oh, good news, but properly defined, the gospel of Jesus Christ is offensive to everyone. 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 Do you know why? Because here's what the gospel says. The gospel said, the God of heaven is holy, holy, holy. And you are not, not, not. And left in that position, the holy, righteous, loving God who knows that sin always destroys. Always. I don't care what your sin is this morning. You let it play out. It will kill something. It will kill a relationship. It will kill happiness. It will kill joy. It will kill something. And ultimately, it will kill your soul. And the gospel says, this is why it's offensive, that whether you're the photographer or the pornographer, the unrighteous or the self-righteous, you must be saved the same way. And that's offensive. Because you know what? I'm good. I'm not a prostitute. I'm not a whoremonger. I'm not ripping people off. I'm a good guy. I'm a good neighbor. I do my best. What do you mean that I have to bow the knee to Christ? I'm basically good. No, we are basically bad. And we are basically dead. And there is no life outside of Christ. And when you start to define the gospel like that, guess what? Now we have trouble. You church people, making all kinds of problems with your gospel. Yeah, you can absorb one that's not defined, but when you define it, we're in trouble. And my friend, listen to me. It is this gospel that's the only hope for your salvation. So we don't have to talk about it. We don't have to define it. But there's no hope without it. You can feel good sitting in church the rest of your life and die and split hell wide open. Or you can repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here is Ahab saying, hey, Elijah, you are the problem. Ah, no. Elijah was the solution. And this morning, we have the solution to the world's greatest problem. Because ultimately, sin is going to kill you. And left undealt with, it will kill your soul forever. So let's talk about a personal level on this idea of casting blame. Because here is Ahab. Can I tell you about Ahab? He is a self-deceiving narcissist. He's a narcissist, man. He's blaming everyone for his problems. You know people like that? Don't raise your hand. Some of them are probably here. That everything is always someone else's fault. Now listen to me. Understand what I'm saying about this idea of victimization. Because that's what he's doing here. The truth is, the Bible makes it clear that there are victims in our world and there are perpetrators. The Bible's it is, it is raw when it talks about the depravity of mankind. And there are people who are victimized by perpetrators, and, and in every area. But at the same time, the Bible offers authoritative and profound wisdom on the journey from being a victim to a victor in Christ. And so I'm not talking about people who are truly victimized. I'm talking about a man now who is blaming everyone for his problems because it's easier for him to be the victim. The truth is Ahab is the cause of his own spiritual trouble. It has been his decisions 
that have caused his personal anguish. It's not his temperament. It's not his function. It's not the child within. It's his decision. And it's not going to be resolved by blaming someone else. It won't be. Here's our world today. No one wants to talk about sin, right? Let's not talk about sin. Sin makes us uncomfortable. Sin is archaic. No one wants to hear about sin. Here's the problem. When we remove sin from the conversation, the reality of sin, which, by the way, you're in a good group this morning because we have something in common. We're all sinners. I don't care what you look like this morning, how well you dressed up, how long you've been coming. We're all in the same boat. We're sinners. But when you remove the reality of sin from the conversation, what you also remove is a possibility of repentance and hope. We have to talk about our own sin because until we acknowledge that, there is no deliverance. Not resolved by blaming others, your parents, your friends, or excusing your behavior. The agony that we face because of our decisions can only be solved through confession and repentance. So instead of blaming your past, blaming your parents, uh, blaming everybody in between, believing Freud's ethic of non-responsibility, choose to acknowledge your own sin and repent. Listen, I'm not talking to the lost now. I am talking to believers this morning because we get caught in this trap. I'm saved. I know Christ, so I'm okay. And when something happens, it's like, well, my wife, she really ticked me off. I wanted to say bum in church, and she didn't say it was okay. I'm so mad. It's her fault they have an attitude. Or that guy in McDonald's who doesn't understand how the lane split, and he should be pulling up, and now I'm angry, and so this came out. Or the hammer hit my thumb, and the stupid hammer who hit my thumb, it just made that happen. We do this. But I'm telling you something. You can do that the rest of your life, and you will never experience the freedom of forgiveness and cleansing found in confession. We must confess. And it's time for many of us to grab our carcasses and bring them before the throne of glory and holiness and say, God, this is my bitterness. This is my lust. This is my irritation and my anger and my self-righteousness and my pride. It's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer, and so God, save me from myself. Forgive me. The church will not move forward, and your life will not move forward, and your victories will not come until we confess the problem of an evil heart. And not hers or his, but mine. And here's the truth of the story. We're going to read in a few more chapters down that Ahab, this wicked, ungodly, unregenerated, the worst king in the history of Israel, gets in trouble later on, and he, he repents. You know what God does? God says, look at Ahab. He's repented. I'm going to give him space for grace. How much more a child of the king when we repent? We must understand casting blame doesn't help. It must be through confession of our sins. Forsake it and live. And then finally, this morning, I want you to see this, that our commitments have consequences. Look at verse number 21.
And Elijah came unto all the people and said, How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. And if Baal, then follow him. And the people answered him not a word. What's Elijah doing here? Well, what he's doing is saying this. What's the truth? There is, there is no neutral ground in our universe. There is truth and there are lies. And you choose. Right? And just that you know is only truth that will ever set you free. It, it is. It's not the therapist. It's not the self-help book. It's not more self-esteem. It, it, it's, it's not, certainly not the internet. The only thing that's ever going to set us free is truth. And so Elijah says to all of Israel, listen, if God is God, then follow him. And if he's not, don't. And can I tell you something? This is the claim of Jesus Christ. If Christ is who he said he was. And we have good evidence to believe that because he's the only guy in human history, after three days of being dead, who got up in his own power. So, if he is God, then he says, follow me. And if you follow him, he tells you up front, it's going to cost you something. This this nonsense of just believe Jesus and you're going to be healthy, wealthy, and wise is a lie. It's a lie. No one has promised that other than Olstein and Creflo Dollar and Joyce Meyer. Because Jesus didn't. A matter of fact, Jesus said, if you follow me, you're going to get in trouble. Paul says, if you live godly, you're going to suffer persecution. That that message is not biblical. You say, boy, Christianity sounds like a drag, man. Yeah, it would be, other than the reward is eternal life, which is a pretty good deal. And he doesn't leave us or forsake us, and he walks through all of this with us, and he has purpose to everything that happens. I think that's a good deal. But if you're banking on being healthy, wealthy, and wise, someone lied to you, man. Here's what Jesus said. And we need to be reminded, if you're without Christ, you need to know this up front. If you are in Christ and saved today, you need to be reminded of this. Look what he says in Luke chapter 14, verse 28. For which of you, intending to build a tower, sitteth not down first, and counteth the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish? Lest haply, haply after he hath laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, that um, all that behold it begin to mock him, saying, the man began to build and was not able to finish. Uh, Which doesn't seem too bad, but I guess it's humiliating. Verse 31, Or what king, uh, going to make war against another king, sitteth not down first, and consulteth whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him that cometh against him with 20,000, or else, while the other is yet a great way off, he sendeth an an ambassador, a bas- an, oh my goodness, that's a terrible word. Um, an ambassage, which is a delegation. Let's go with delegation. I like that one better. He sendeth a delegation and desireth conditions of peace. Listen now. Likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. You know what Jesus says? You better count the cost. Because there is a cost. And your commitment to Christ will have consequences. And Elijah says to Israel, if God is God, follow him. And if not, don't. 
And I would say to you this morning, believer in Christ, if this is real, then follow him. And if not, get out while you can. And I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. I mean, quit the, quit the services, quit the twice a year at Easter and Christmas, quit it all. Because Christ says, with your commitment, there are consequences. Understand that. He is not an idea you play with, but a king to whom you submit. He makes demands on our lives. He makes claims. He invades. He gets all in your business. And he refuses to allow us to put him in his religious box and to domesticate him. Jesus Christ will not be domesticated by anyone. Anyone. Do you know why? He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he is worthy. And he will reign. This idea that Jesus is my Savior and not my Lord, nonsense. 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 He is Lord. He is King. He is a sovereign one. He is holy, just, righteous. He is coming to rule and reign with a rod of iron. And the truth is, when we commit to him, there are consequences in our life. We are to follow him because he is worthy. We are to love him, to serve him, to adore him. Our life should be changed by him. The problem with the church is this. We have domesticated our God and we've not followed him with every mandate that he gives us. And it's where the rubber meets the road. Why aren't you kind to people? Why aren't you loving? Why don't you give? Why are you so cantankerous? Why are you looking for a fight? Why do you have to have your way? Can I tell you something? Christian, you have no rights. None. If the king of glory laid his life down on a cross for not one sin that he committed, and he died for you, and he gave his life for you, what are we thinking? The only appropriate response to that is this. We give our lives to him. Period. And so quit halting between two opinions. Quit limping. Quit being too sold or double-minded. If he is king, then follow him. If he is king, then worship him. If he is king, then do what he says. But don't play games. Don't play games. He is king. And so in our text this morning, I want to leave you with these three ideas from the, from the narrative. Number one, there's a contrast between God's servants. So this morning, be faithful. You don't have to make stuff up. Just be faithful. And be Christ-like. Just be like him. If you're ushering, then be Christ-like. If you're greeting, be Christ-like. If you're preaching, be Christ-like. If you're changing diapers, be Christ-like. Be a faithful servant in love, compassion, selflessness. Number two, quit casting blame. Start confessing sin. Forsake and live. And I mean live. Right? The gospel saves us for all eternity, but the gospel saves us today. Confess your sin. Faith and repentance is the way of the Christian life. It doesn't just, oh, I repented, I'm good. No, it's a daily, hourly, minutely thing for most of us. Forsaken live. And then finally, our commitments do have consequences. So follow him and look to him.
And I promise you, it will change everything. Let's have a word of prayer this morning.